0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Trial by Fire. Um, Our guest today is a man named Toby Korn, who, if you guys remember, we actually had him on back in last year, back around episode 50. Um, We talked about mindfulness and psychology and sort of the positive impacts of nature on our brains and things. Um, But... Things have kind of slightly changed in the world since last year. Um, obviously, very uncertain times, obviously, with Russia invading Ukraine and, and all the kind of knock-on effects that it, that has had on fuel and energy costs. Um, for example, here in Finland, the government are recommending that we have food and water and resources in our homes for to survive for at least 72 hours without electricity. And um, this is actually an area or a field that's something that Toby is extremely kind of... Um, learn it in and and kind of runs a lot of courses on this sort of urban preparedness and, you know, having your home kind of safe and supplied in times of either minor inconveniences or larger scale problems. Um, So Toby, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. I think this is a really nice, uh, interesting time to kind of have this conversation. And we really appreciate you uh, sharing your knowledge on this, on these topics.
1: You're most welcome guys. And it's an important one. And I think that's, that's that first stage, isn't it? Is that acknowledgement That gone are the days where you can stand around and say, oh, nothing bad's going to happen here or something like that's never going to happen here. There's a lot of things that were never going to happen here that's happening there now. And that's got people a little bit um, concerned, off balance. And, of course, going into this situation in the winter in Europe now or the winter in the world, it's not just Europe, but it's not that we're all fresh. There's still all of that fatigue and stress from the pandemic which is then just mm-hmm. rolled over into the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So it's, it's definitely a challenging time.
2: I saw the um, meme you posted the other day on Facebook, uh, Toby, and I had to read it out to Hannah as I was laughing. Um, it said something along the lines of, did you realize that it's forty one, forty days left of um, un- until it's 2023. And here, most of us are still processing end of 2019. <laughs> and,
1: I'm processing it badly. Yeah. If and I, if I like the, to badly. The, the
2: last, the <laughs> last, the last year, yeah, 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 yeah. But there there's, uh, there's a lot that's been going on, of course, and the, the sort of preparedness feel, I guess, has gotten a huge upswing from not only being bunker folks, for lack of a better term, to uh, being sort of taken into the close to the to the mainstream way of living for a lot of people mm-hmm. at least here in sweden um i guess in finland i guess 72 hours is is one thing but i would assume that in finland they recommend a lot longer given their recent history of um a, a, a neighboring country so to say um here in sweden i don't know exactly what the official sort of timeline is right now but i know it's uh, beyond 72 hours at least
1: So I'll just quickly expand on that if I can,
2: um, just because it's a nice clarification.
1: So MSB's recommendation, which is the the leading authority in Sweden, is every home um, should be prepared to go Uh, a week completely self-sufficient minimum seven days totally self-sufficient and that's interesting because we could look at well hang on finland's just to the right of us why are they need you know why are you why are you guys in finland at 72 hours and we're at seven days and the fact Mm. is the finnish government has a lot more confidence in its total defense infrastructure because it's kept it maintained as opposed Mm -hmm. to sweden (laughs) which underfunded and decimated over the last 50 years its defense infrastructure So, you know, in theory, looking at the open source accounts, if something major happened in Finland, other than troops getting mobilized and conscripts or, you know, former conscripts getting activated, they can effectively put the entire population underground for almost a year and they're ready for that. So what they're saying is for Finland, we we, will just need that initial period to figure out what our response is and then the wheels are going to start turning and the government plan is going to kick in. And Sweden's saying something similar except it's going to take them a minimum of twice as long because well, in Sweden they're going to have to prioritize right. because they haven't got the shelters for everybody. They don't have the stockpiles. They don't have the reserves. They don't have the training. They don't have the personnel. So they're going to have to make some real heavy triage decisions in the beginning. Um, mm. So that, that's mm-hmm. just a bit of context. And for whatever country people are listening in, um, if you've got no recommendation from the government, you might think, this is counterintuitive now. Brilliant. There's no recommendation. So our government's got it. No, they haven't got a clue. We're safe. Like, there's just like no plan there. <laughs> so uh, start to filter that for your own sort of experience in your own location as to what is my government telling me to be ready for and how long. And that should give you a rough indication of how confident they are in their own plans or
0: not, as
2: the case may be.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Right.
2: I... We're, we're, we're talking a little bit loosely here about... Mm um what it what it means of of being prepared or being you know 72 hours what does that mean you have to be self-sufficient but if we're sort of taking that and breaking it down to a few basics like what would be the just sorry yeah sorry Sorry, just before
0: we get into that I just want to kind of circle back slightly just on what you what you said in the intro intro there and it reminded me of something that um our our conversation last week actually Jeremy is if you remember with uh Charlie who who got arrested in Russia while he was there um and spent kind of a uh, i think what was it a month or something in a russian prison a and month, yeah. and one of the things that came up in the conversations Toby, was that yeah we're um our sort of western mindset um he's from the UK I'm Irish and, you know, you're Mr. Swedish. We, Our brains have never really had to deal with these sort of situations of the types of things that can actually happen to the point where we there's a false sense of security of having these things play out as they kind of business as usual and not to get into fear mongering or get into sort of, you know, because I, I really don't want the, the, the conversation to spiral into that sort of side of things. And and just to prerequisite as well, I would say the 72 hour thing in Finland, I believe is simply to, is talking about this winter, the power might go out because energy costs are so expensive, blah, blah, blah. There is a potential for the power to go down for up to 72 hours. And I believe that's what they're talking about with the sort of being self-sufficient in the home. So it, apart from it's, I don't necessarily think they're talking about mobilization or anything like that. I think it's more about like a very normal thing like the power going out, which I think is a more practical sort of realistic and likely sort of thing for for you know, something that somebody needs to be prepared for than an invading force, so to speak. So I just thought, just to prerequisite the conversation with that, if that's uh, if that makes sense.
1: It does, and I'm just going to give you a, a great caveat phrase that um, I use a lot of time in training, that normally in the introduction, all we're looking at in preparedness is low-cost to no-cost solutions to reasonably mm-hmm. foreseeable problems. It's, it's not about being dramatic and fearful and terrified. It's just yeah. taking that, methodical logical assessment of what could interrupt my lifestyle for how long with what consequence and then mm-hmm. how much time energy um, am i going to invest in offsetting that right so i right. think that's a real yep. nice place to keep it in this isn't like the bombs mm-hmm. are falling you know russia's invading. no no exactly it's just like a bunch of stuff can happen right and a lot of these systems that we yep. rely on are stretched to an unprecedented manner Certainly, for most people under forty, they wouldn't have seen something like this in their lifetime necessarily.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what um, if we go back to that? Then, what does what does it mean to be prepared, 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 prepared in terms of what uh, low cost to no cost things can one do? Let's say that the average person living in an apartment somewhere or in a townhouse or something like that. What can this person do to take a few basic steps to be better prepared and ready for doesn't matter if it is power outage uh, job loss things that interrupt your daily lifestyle what would be uh, if we're looking at the, 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 the basic human necessities if we start if we start there with sort of food water shelter kind of thing Um, shelter is sort of taken care of with your house and apartment to a certain degree?
1: So let's start there. Um, Everybody's circumstance is going to be different. Um, You can have a neighbor in a tower block in exactly the same format apartment as you, and they might prepare in a slightly different manner than you do because of their individual circumstances. So and this is why I'm I'm not a huge fan of arbitrary checklists in the preparedness community. It's like, you know, as long as you buy right. all this and have it at home, you're fine. You, you've got to bring it down to an individual or family unit level as to, you know, what what nuances and specialities are involved with you. But we'll come back to that shortly. Um, I think the key thing to get started is acknowledge the possibility something can happen, right? We have to start there. If, if you're of that mindset of like, nothing's ever going to happen. And if it does, the government's got me. There's very little that you'll take away from this conversation (laughs) that we're about to have. So the first thing Mm -hmm. is to acknowledge, yeah, things happen every day uh, that can interrupt my lifestyle. And now we've got some potentially slightly larger incidents that can have a a bigger, longer impact than I previously would have worried about. Um, I guess the initial part then is twofold. One is to not, over just one thing. And a lot of people in preparedness, this is exactly what they do is they'll go out and buy like a year's supply of dehydrated food and like, I'm good. And, and that's it. They've just got a big cupboard full of food and nothing else because they've just completely lacked the context of what else they might need. So it's got to be broader than that. And then depending on the nature of the situation, one of the first things you're going to be asking yourself is, do I actually want to stay where I am to um, move through this situation, this challenging time, or do I actually want to leave for somewhere safer? So this is the kind of stay in place versus bug out philosophy. And when it comes to bugging out, the key phrase to remember is we never want to run away from danger. We want to run towards safety. Okay. So Let's just take Sweden as an example. For here in the north, for a lot of the city population, for the discussions I have, you know, if things get bad and there's power outages and, you know, whatever, whatever, civil unrest, a lot of the folks are just saying, well, then I'll just head to my cabin because that's way more equipped for me to be, you know, without regular services than trying to make do in my apartment, right? But not many people throughout Europe have got access to that cabin or whatever the case may be. We're back to those individual circumstances again. So if we're going to look at that broad swathe, uh, and you mentioned uh, shelter there, Jeremias, and food and things like that, there's actually uh, seven key categories we want to look at and make sure that we've got something prepared for each one of them to give us a well-rounded response. So in no particular order, although the first one is the first one, we'd look to make sure in the event of a complete loss of services or interruption to regular services, I can cater for my water needs My food needs, I have sufficient shelter to protect me from the environment and any specific threats within it. I can um, still maintain signaling or communication. So um, then medical and hygiene, and that's one of the ones most overlooked and most problematic and personal safety. Okay, so there's a broad swathe. We would want to invest a little bit in each one of those. So making sure I can sort of truly cope. And the simple thing to imagine is, you know, if you went and shut off your water supply and flicked the breaker in your fuse box and decided you weren't going to open your door and engage with society, how long could you stay at home for and comfortably last? That's the initial litmus test.
0: That's interesting. And and what about like, like, I guess there's a lot of really practical things that I'm, and it was only actually when it's like, of course you have those, um, those categories and things, but the, some of the really practical things that, myself and my partner were actually thinking about it It was only when we started, when she actually started asking me these questions that I realized that I didn't have an answer to them because I think like a, like a lot of us, like you're saying people that have cabins or maybe people that are, have a tendency to have a lot of outdoor gear, be that sort of multi fuel sort of cooking systems or a lot of gas stored in the house. Or like you said, dehydrated meals and things. But my, my partner was asking me like, you know, can you flush the toilet when the power is out? I was like, Oh, actually I don't know. And, and, if you can or if you can't, is I think is, you know, what is the alternative then, like, regardless? So I think there's a lot of those things also I would think that a lot of people aren't thinking about. And like you said, the context of the situation, um, having a giant box of food stored in a cupboard, you don't actually think about, like you said, hygiene, like flushing the toilet. Like, you know, if you live in an apartment, how the fuck do you go to the bathroom? Like, you know, like just, that's a really simple thing that I think for a lot of people would completely... Destroyed their situation like just the inability to take a shit basically to like put it crudely. Yeah, you're
1: absolutely right and i think we, you know what we can't overlook in the modern landscape is that technological overlay as well so if you're in an apartment block that's got like wonderful key fob systems and digi codes and you know no no keys for locks and things like that anymore right right what happens to those when the power goes out you know do they do they default to unlocked or do they default to lock
0: you couldn't get your car out of the garage if you know if the if the garage door wouldn't open because you had no... Yeah, how, yeah. how
2: long is the backup power for that thing then?
0: Is there backup power? Is right. there backup power. Exactly. First question. Yeah, and exactly.
2: then right. how long?
1: And then how well maintained and tested is that backup power, uh, you know, generator systems? So yeah, great example there, Patrick. If you're, if you're causing that sort of, you know, s- secure parking where you've got your little blip fob to get you out and the power's out, that's that's you stuck, isn't it? Or certainly vehicle-less for the foreseeable mm. future. Um, or... Right. What yeah. manual overrides are there? We would, we would like to think there are some manual overrides, but where are they? What do they look like? How do you activate them? You know, and that's where a lot of people just don't explore those mm-hmm. kind of things. And, and, and in oh, exactly. a grid down situation is not the time that you're going to be getting answers from anybody. So this is sort of stuff you need to get ahead of <laughs> exactly. and sort of figure that out in advance, really, you know?
0: Exactly, exactly. Okay. So, so how, would you, how would you use the toilet if the fire was out? So you've got
1: two options in in the first instance. That obviously you can. Um, I mean, it, it may be even without electricity, with the with the water system functioning and with pressure in the in the mains pipes, it's still going to flush. Happy days. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you're not going to flush from accessing the system, you can just uh, gravity flush your own toilet by throwing sort of half a bucket of water in there. Normally, it's two to three liters minimum that you'll need to sort of throw in to actually get the flush like uh, an actual flush going. Yeah, but that's. Yeah. A not insignificant amount of water to just be throwing away mm-hmm. every time no, you take exactly. a shit. Right. And so then, then you're just looking at, have you got some temporary options? Do you just now line your toilet with a heavy duty trash bag? And you know, if you've got some cat litter or sawdust that you can throw in the bottom of that. So that will take you for two to three cycles. And then you're just going to bag that up, nod it off and go throw it in the, in the garbage or whatever the case may be right? and reset right. the system. Yeah. So you're moving into that sort of truly off grid side of things, you know?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. but of course that's where the hygiene comes in. You might've solved one problem. Okay. That's, that's my temporary toilet done. But if this is in a, in a warm time of the year and you've got flies in your property and they're now landing in that toilet and then Mm -hmm. landing in your kitchen and going around, you've got a huge, bigger cross-contamination risk. So this is where we need to sort of um, get our ducks in a row in a way and make sure we're not solving one problem but that solution is giving me a cascade of other problems to also manage.
0: I mean, is 72 hours enough time to have set up or would you, as you said, would you go for, would you have at least a week or would you have more? What would be your, in your sort of estimation, like the, or let's say like resources, just purely speaking, food, water, um uh, I don't know. Is there things that people forget about? Like you said, like what about luxuries? Like I would imagine having a bar of chocolate in a, sh- in a shitty situation would be quite a nice thing to have. Maybe so people don't think about those things.
1: So 72 hours is a great start goal and that's very, very achievable. Um, you know, and if you shop around and if you dissipate your, your purchases, you can build up that sort of resilience stockpile for three days quite easily, mm-hmm. quite quickly and, and and relatively cost effectively. Now, what you may have is some initial investment that you, you know, you thinking about, I need to buy a camping stove and things like that. The great thing is once you've bought that once, whether you use that for three days, three weeks or three months, the only other thing you have to factor in there is the fuel for it. The actual stove will just last as, as long as it will, if you've bought a good one. All right. So what we tend yeah. to find is once we've got our three days set up, that's mm-hmm. the initial sort of or 72 hours, that's the initial heavy lift. And then to grow that to a week is quite easy. It's just adding in a little bit more food. A little bit more water, mm-hmm. a little bit more fuel for the stove and, and these kind of things so to stretch yeah. from three days to seven days shouldn't be double the price it should be about probably thirty percent of your initial spend because now you're just adding to those stockpiles if that makes sense and so for, for us as yeah. we do the sequential yeah. workshop we want everybody to start with 72 hours right and then if you've gone and purchased you know canned food or, or food that you eat that you're going to rotate in storage, keep doing that you do two to three more grocery trips and now you've got yourself beyond a week. Two to three more, and you've got yourself up to three weeks. And for the vast majority of people, you don't need to go more than that because in three weeks, either the problem solved itself, or crisis contingency has come in, or it's a major situation you're not going to be worrying about these things anymore because there's bigger fish to fry. Okay, so you know the, the the year underground, fully stocked nuclear bunker. It's a beautiful aspiration if you like that sort of thing. It's very expensive, very impractical, very non-functional. So. In our mind, it is that, it's that se- sequence of like, get yourself 72 hours resilience, grow that to a week, and then incrementally, if you can get that up to three weeks, you're, you are in the absolute upper elite percentile of society in your ability to cope with disaster.
2: And what, what, what would it be like if we're looking at types of foods that people should aspire to? Get. I do, This is of course highly personal, and this, this this is there's no sort of pointers on on what you should buy kind of thing. But I guess there's still a little bit of like the 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 saying, or I don't know if it's a saying, but the uh, eat uh, so sort of store what you eat rather than buying bunch of stuff that will have a long shelf life, but you don't eat. So how how valuable is that from a psychological perspective, do you think?
1: Yes, yeah, so that phrase is the key one. St- store what you eat and eat what you store. Don't think in a stressful situation that at that point, completely radically altering your regular diet is going to do you any favors. You know, And I always say to mm. people, if you're going to go out and buy a, a caseload of MREs, before you do that, buy one of them and try eating it and see how you get on with it. And by the way, make sure your family eats it as well, because it's all all well and good. You can sit down and chomp on it and suffer. But if no one else is participating, you've got yourself a problem. And at that point, all the spouses and kids are going to turn around and say, but you said we were prepared for this and we're not because I can't eat that. Right. So um, shelf stable is good. You know, things that don't need um, access to electricity, sort of refrigeration or freezing to, to maintain their stores, But again, if we're talking three to seven days, that's not a lot of stuff. You know, it's a few tins, it's a few crisp breads, it's a few spreads. It's not anything crazy. And, uh, you know, for that initial 48 hours, even if the electricity is out, your freezer, if you've packed it properly, is going to hold integrity fairly well. And you're just going to start eating your way through the contents of the fridge in the first instance, because that's the thing that's going to perish the fastest. Right. So this is where it's not necessarily about having, again, the arbitrary checklist, but just that sequential plan of. In the event of power outage, I'd eat this first, then I'd move on to this, and then I'm getting into my backup supplies, and we're going from there. That yeah, sense. yeah, for
2: for sure, it does, def- definitely. It's a, it's a good. Um, I, I like the the um, sort of way of thinking where this arbitrary checklist is the main focus. I can fully understand why a checklist that someone else has made is a stepping stone into thinking what you might need, but just as any outdoor and any other activity for in, in the outdoors, like bushcraft or whatever it is, Borig's preferences is probably very different from mine and it's probably very different from yours, Toby. So there's no, I guess there's no difference in what we like to eat and how we like to plan and what things we see as being the most likely thing happening to us.
1: And that's the key thing, right? It's, it's that assessment and then the impact assessment of how's that going to affect me and people near me. So I'm going to give you guys just one, one specific story on that. Um, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, well now, probably three to four months in when it was starting to get really, really squiffy and the lockdown started to happen and, and everybody was starting to be a bit like, "Whoa, where are we going here? Um, my son at that stage was five months old, right? Formula fed baby. And, you know, we've got our preparedness in my wife and I, and my extended family. But at that point, I actually made the decision and I said to my wife, we're going to get a year's worth of baby formula, like now, like within this week I'm buying it. Um, and the rule was I'd never empty a shelf. I would, if, if there was a last canister, I'd always leave it. But not knowing what was going to happen and knowing my wife and I and my extended family could adapt our, our, our diet and our menu and sort of eat a fair amount of pain without a problem, I was happy with what we had. But for the baby that was entirely different. You know, I, you, I can't just immediately mm-hmm. wean him and put him on fo- solids that he's not familiar right. with. That's going to be problematic for him and a massive stress load within our house. If that's where we're at, you know, you imagine my wife looking at me, tapping a foot saying, so Mr. Urban preparedness expert, <laughs> like why is our baby crying the entire time? You know, <laughs> so, um, were friends of mine doing that? No. Cause I didn't have kids that age for friends of mine that had youngsters, toddlers, um, babies, was I ringing around them and saying you really need to prioritise this because there there is already baby formula shortages? Yeah, I absolutely right. was, but that was super specific yeah. specific advice for certain demographics. But boy, were we glad we did that because there was there was a number of occasions when we were going going to the shops just to check him out and seeing you know no formula there, none, um, and that was very much like you know that was a good call. And actually, by the time we got him weaned and he'd moved fully onto solids, we had two cans sealed and one can open half used. Like we'd done the numbers that wow. well. Yeah. Um, and those two cans sealed were still in mm. date so we donated them to local hospital. You know? Um, but that was that example of like tailing it to the individual level and we're looking at food specifically on that one. That that was a great example of that.
2: I, mean, I, I guess that highlights as well something else that's quite important in, in, in all of this is if you are thinking that you'll be able to get everything you need in the absolute last minute, it might not
0: exist. Yeah, I mean, we all remember yeah. the... Uh,
2: no you were able to plan and think um, a little bit ahead, but yeah. The yeah, exactly,
0: paper. that's what I was going to mention. And, yeah.
1: and, and a phrase we use there is there's a big difference between unaffordable and unavailable.
0: Right, right, okay.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. there, there could be some things that you're going to go, ouch, right. that's going to hurt to buy that now, but I need it, so I'm going to buy it. And then like you say, you don't miss, there's a time you can walk into the shop and say, all right, now I need to stock up on that thing and too late. Been and gone. You missed your window. It's not there anymore, you know. Um, and especially where little ones are concerned, that's that's a massive, massive stress factor as well. Not only on them, but to the parents and everything beyond that. So this is where, like I say, if my wife and I had to drop down to two meals a day, even one meal a day, yeah, you can do that. So you're not going to die anytime soon. But you know, you, you're going to make a baby like miss its feed every four hours. Yeah, good good oh, luck living lacking. in that house. Yeah, that's going to yeah, be a challenge.
0: Sure. You know? And I suppose, like on the other side of things. That's, of course, an extremely specific situation. I think that's a really good example because, mm-hmm. yeah, children need, uh, you know, we're, we're peop- children will always be prioritized over adults in, the, in those sort of situations, of course. Mm-hmm. But something like water, everybody needs water, you know, like that's a very universal need. Um, my question was around, and kind of similar to what you were saying, Jeremias, about, you know, some people living in apartments and things, often their kitchens are very small, there's very little space space. Um, where do you store, like how much, how much, if you're talking about calculating, like how much water would you plan on sort of storing and where would you store it? If like somebody who had a, yeah, like an apartment, a small space where there isn't a lot of storage, where, where would you sort of think to put those maybe under the, I don't know, under the skirting boards or something. So it's a, it's a great question and and it's a good
1: priority because without water we're done. You know, you can skip meals for two to three days, no problem. You know, there's a lot that we can do without, but water's one of those you're going to notice very, very quickly, the uh, the lack of Mm -hmm. that. So your initial question, how do we factor it? You are looking at a minimum of two and a half to three liters of per person per day water requirement for their fundamental needs. So that's just staying hydrated. Now, if you Mm -hmm. want to add on, flushing toilets, washing clothes, washing dishes, things like that on top. You can easily make that eight to 10 liters per person per day easily. Yeah. Right. Right. And water's bulky and water's heavy, as you say. So you can go out and buy six 20 liter jerry cans. And yeah, where where are you going to store those and how are you going to move them around? So first of all, it's to look at your apartment space. and, And the good thing with apartments is they've got very creative in storage. Right. So there's there's good options out there. And now, as Jeremy says, prepping's gone very mainstream. So there's, there's a lot more guidance article on, you know, how to sort of prepare in a small space environment, whatever the case may be. One of the things yeah, I like yeah. to recommend to people, again in the sort of low cost, no cost a- angle, is you know, consider just using empty pot bottles, two litre bottles, and just rinse those out when you've used them and fill those with water. Because it's easy to tuck away 2 liter bottles than one 20 twenty litre jerry can. In your small apartment, yep. right? Gotcha. And so, you know, it's the same. Mm-hmm. If I'm sort of, let's say, okay, 72 hours, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to factor my pets in. So I'm going to say I want eight liters per person per day, three people in my household, 24 liters. So I'm looking at, you know, around 80 liters rounded off. Okay. So that's 40 pot bottles or four jerry cans. Um, yeah. You need to start getting creative. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, it's and tuck, a lot of tucking these things away um, or, or seeing <laughs> or, or what your options are and stuff, because what. the other thing yeah. is you know, if you can't stockpile that then you've got to know where is your alternative source of water how will you get there to get water what vessels have you got to put the water in how can you safely transport that water back to where you are and that will depend on time and distance and then do you need to do anything to that water to make it safe to drink So this is why in the first instance you want to stockpile water because gathering, transporting Mm -hmm. and processing water is an incredibly arduous resource intensive task that, you know, can be all consuming. So that's why we always want to have a buffer stockpile to start with to then buy us time to that. Okay, what is the contingency plan for how water is getting given out into my community now? or whatever the case may be. So it it shouldn't be a case of saying it's difficult to store water. You should really be challenging yourself to to be creative and find spaces to store that water in a safe manner that, most importantly, you can easily access and utilize. And that's why I like the two-liter bottles, because to pick up and open a two-liter bottle and use it is easy. You know, for young guys like us or like you guys, I'm older than you now, you know, hauling around 20 litre jerry cans up a, up a fourth storey apartment block or whatever the case may be isn't for everybody. And even just lifting that jerry can onto the kitchen side to be able to use it, you know, that's not everybody can do that. So you've got to think about the quantities that you're moving around in now. All right. Um, so I don't want to get overly specific on that one. But yeah, water's one of those you, you want to have quite a well-rounded comprehensive plan along with contingencies. And also, of course, monitoring and managing your water usage when you start. You know, not just, ah, the, the water's gonna come back soon, so I'm just gonna throw four liters every time I take a piss down the toilet just to feel nice about it. You know, that, that is a complete waste of that resource. And now you have to start right from the get-go, really think about how you're gonna ration that water out and reuse that water. So if I've cooked off my pasta uh, in my, in my um, spirit stove, and I've drained the water off that pasta. That's not any water that I can use for sort of further hydration or meal preparation, but it's gray water that can absolutely be used to get thrown down the toilet for a gravity flush. If that makes mm-hmm.
0: sense. Right. Right. Yeah. I
2: yeah. have. No, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I have a good story in and around, uh, water. So the place that we have here, the first winter we lived the, um, pump in our deep well, we have a drilled well, so our own water, the pump that's 70 meters down into the um, bedrock uh, busted. And this was in mid-January. And it was quite an expensive pump to get. And it was not that much of a job to get it uh, sort of hauled up and and things like that. But it was was just um, a lot of things happening in and around that time. So we were out of water from our tap for about a month and a half. And this is absolutely mid-winter in yeah, subarctic sweden with 20 plus dogs and uh, a dozen of chickens to take care of and two cats and two people us luckily we had two uh, now good friends they were staying with us during that time but we had to go down to the creek that's behind our house uh, i had to chainsaw up a hole in the creek and keep that open for a month and a half and every morning and every evening to take care of all of our cooking needs, our hygienic, hy- hygienic needs, uh, the sauna. We didn't have a shower, of course, so we, we uh, used the sauna in our barn and to make sure the dogs had enough water, the chickens had enough water so we could clean all the dog equipment, everything. It was about two and a, 250 liters in the morning and 250 liters in the evening. So we used about 500 liters of water per day. Right. <laughs> to get everything done, and you were not being excessive with that. Like you
1: use that quantity every no, single day. They were no, not we, we didn't. We,
2: no. Exactly, and we we didn't. um We of course, uh, of course, we we were lucky enough that electricity still worked. Of course, um and we were able to use the snowmobile to drive down to the creek, drive all, along the creek, have a trailer, haul everything up on the trailer, and then drive up to the back of our house and and lift everything in that we needed. So just to do that, where we live here with all the animals that we have and everything that we need to take care of, would have been an absolute nightmare to do if we did not have electricity as well, or if the snowmobile wasn't working for any reason, or if we were physically not capable to do that at that point in time, if we were injured or anything like that. So... I would never, I would never been able to guess that it would have been roughly uh, 500 liters of water on a daily basis that we needed here at our place.
1: And that's that insidious thing about water. Like we take it so much for granted. We just cannot factor how much water we actually consume in a day because it's just all just happening. And you ask people like, you know, on a washing machine cycle, on a short wash cycle, how much water do you think your washing machine uses? And they're going to look at the size of the drum and they're going to look at the size of the machine and go, ah, I don't know, four or five liters maybe? No. For that short cycle, you're going to get through about 25 liters of water. On a long cycle, you can double that easily, you know? So we, we've totally lost that regard for what our actual water consumption levels are. I'm going to say that so when, when,
2: the, when the tap, when we first, when we got the the uh, new pump lower down into the uh, well again it was very happy days it was celebration worthy sort of moment when when the 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 water was running in the tap again yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it is something that uh, we really do take for granted don't we and and even i guess even in the wintertime and stuff Because where I like, I mean, I'm kind of moving into kind of camping, kind of territory here. But when I go camping in the winter here, obviously with all the snow around, you don't have to think about carrying water out with you, Um, and you really realize how significantly lighter your pack will be without having to carry two, three, four liters of water with you for you know an evening or a weekend if you don't have a a sort of a water source there. So even the practicality of the weight of water, like you said, Toby, um, it's a really bulky and intensive sort of thing to have to carry and store and and transport and purify as well if you're boiling it or if you're using any sort of other methods. So is there anything um, that can mitigate that? Like, let's say water purifiers and things. Is it is it worth having something like a like some iodine, or not iodine tablets, but the water purification tablets or maybe like a, a water purification system like the a Grail or a Sawyer filter or something? Um, I suppose it doesn't hurt to have it around anyway, but would that be something that. Exactly. That, yeah. that would
1: be, you know, it, it's sort of, we're, we're drifting into that. It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not right. have it territory. Right, right. What you're getting into with water filtration is a huge cost spectrum, you know. So all the way through to kind of your your, um, countertop Berkeley filter, which is probably going to set you back 400, 600 euros, all the way down to like you see, a little mini Sawyer filter straw. Uh, which still has a very impressive you know, filtration rate, but it's going to knock you back maybe 20 euros, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, going back to the specific question you asked about the chlorine tablets, that's very much in that store what you eat, eat what you store territory, right? Mm. Unless you're used to drinking water from a swimming pool, <laughs> you're going to really, really struggle to deal with chlorinated tablets in right. the beginning. Yeah. And what you've got there, and, and this is a compounding factor, is then the psychological uncertainty creeps in. I'm going to tell you a different story on this in just a second. So, you know, you look at the instructions, one tablet per liter of water. Somebody's going to throw that tablet in a liter or two tablets in your pot bottle, and say, I'm going to sterilize it. And you're going to go, was that enough? I'll throw another one in just to be on the safe side. Uh, Maybe a couple, right? So now you've completely over, overly chemically treated to the point that that water is just unpalatable now. So you've made it safe, in inverted commas, but you can't drink it and we do this on our courses like especially one down in Croatia there's this one one place I particularly love to go into which is a former motor vehicle inspection pit um which is just filled with garbage floating on the water and it's like all right guys you've all got your devices with you drink that water right and everyone's like look at the state of it so yeah <laughs> how much confidence do you have in your purchases right right you know and if you're now <laughs> not prepared to drink from a contaminated water source with your device in hand. What did you buy it for?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, the okay. exact same thing actually happened on a course. Um, I took part in this winter or this summertime rather, uh, with carry survival. Sorry to interrupt your story there, but just no, 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 no. while while I think of it and what we did was we actually built, what well, I'm sure you're aware of is what's called a coyote well, where basically you dig a hole next to a water source, um, and you allow that to sort of fill up naturally. And as you clear the water out of it, it, the water that will fill back into it gradually becomes clearer and clearer. And um, we did this in a bog up in northern, uh, or sorry, in eastern Finland, bogland and the water that was coming up was just brown slushy skulky water um we lined it with birch bark trying but again you know it, it wasn't looking great um but eventually it was starting to look quite clear one of the guys on the course had bought this uh, grail you know the the grail sort of filtration purifier purifier specifically for the course had never really used it before and he was absolutely terrified to drink the water from the Coyote well after it had been put through the grail. And we all had to stand there and go, Honestly, man, it's fine. Like I've used I've been using this filter for two years. You're gonna be fine. But he was terrified. So if it was him by himself with this grail and his only option was to like take up some squelchy water from a bog, maybe he'd rather you know, dehydrate himself and then take the risk, you know, so I totally agree with you. There is a fear or a lack of trust in these tools. And I would say the same with things like compasses and sort of GPS trackers and things, people will second guess what they're reading and will get themselves lost. And it happens all the time. Yeah.
1: And I mean, that's a great example, you know, with regards to kit, there's no point just owning it. You've got to be able to understand and use it and have confidence in it. You know, if you're constantly second guessing it that's a bad thing. And that's that transition between, you know, Mm. purchasing for preparedness and training for preparedness. And that's why in a lot of the courses we deliver, we put these challenges in there because it's, Mm -hmm. it is just a psychological barrier, you know, and those are things you've got to overcome because otherwise, like you say, you're going to get dehydrated uh, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And you just, you know, that's something you've got to figure out. Um, pooping in the outdoors, you know, especially for females. Right. Like, They'll, they'll, they'll wait three days until they're ready to explode before they'll even attempt it. Yeah. And even then you'll, you'll have a two yeah. hour argument about why you should drive them out somewhere so they can use a toilet, you know, because it's, it's just <laughs> such <laughs> like a, a societal yourself. expectation. <laughs> you know, us guys are a little bit more mm-hmm. fortunate, especially mm-hmm. standing up, but yeah, even for a lot of guys coming out of the city, it's just like dig a hole and shit in it or shit in this bag. Like what?
0: You you know? prospect is overpowering uh, yeah. that's
1: that's how detached we've become from those functions and how soft we've become as a society that this becomes a major major drama and you know it doesn't need much training to work through it but you, you definitely need to work through it you know and better to do that in advance of a disaster than in one
0: yeah yeah
2: for sure but from a general preparedness perspective we we've, we've touched a little bit of food and in on water but the shelter the third thing in sort of basic human needs. We have some people live in a house, some people live in an apartment. Let's play with the idea that for some reason, whatever the reason, the power's out and it's in the middle of winter. Or if, for example, you're living in Finland, if the py- power goes out for those 72 hours, how how do you deal with that in a reasonable way that is sort of a no cost, low cost sort of attitude towards it? You can buy a space heater for God knows how much but you might not have to. What do you think? So a lot is going to depend on your location and the season.
1: Is it not? Um, so again, it's to that individual assessment kind of thing. In the first instance with the power going out, if you don't have any alternatives, you know, for heating, it's just going to be bundling up in your clothes, you know? Yeah. Uh, blankets, fleeces, jumpers, hats, gloves, indoors, that kind of thing. And just then trying to access the information to figure how long is this power outage due? Um, This is where you get a huge split in the preparedness community because you'll have some people that believe everything needs to be kept secret and you need to be completely self-sufficient within your own bubble. And others believe that the only way to truly survive in an urban environment is with a community spirit. And so then it can be that sort of shared space mentality of, all right, if all these apartment dwellers are suffering the same power outage, why wouldn't you want to stick 20 people in just one apartment and actually just the sheer heat of their bodies in the same room is going to bring the ambient temperature up of that space. And then with a little bit of additional heating, you, you're, you're going to be in a, in a clear survivability zone, right? But that relies on the fact that you know your neighbors and you get on well with them and everyone's willing to share and this, that, and the other. So that's where that preparedness comes in, that that's not something, you know, in the event of a power outage, if you start knocking on your neighbor's door and saying, if you've got any heat, can I come in? That, that, that's probably going to be a very short conversation that ends in, uh, begins and ends in no. So that's where you need to be putting the framework down already of like, okay, in, in the event of some emergency or some contingency, what have we got? What what can we access this, that, and the other? Um, so clothes by default, blankets, you've already got all those anyway. Uh, and of course, there's a variety of different heaters with alternative fuels that can be used safely indoors as long as you follow the instructions. So, you know, right from your sort of... Primus space heater, which is maybe retailing around 60 80 euros, so it is an investment, but it's not 300 500 700 a 1, thousand euros, which some of the other options might be, you know. Um, and what you're going to do is shrink that space, you're going to heat a specific part of your apartment, everyone's going to gather in and close off and insulate all those other areas so you're capturing the heat in one room. and you know, it's just going to be a massive slumber party at the end of the day, isn't it? You're going to probably end up dragging a bunch of mattresses into the living room adjacent to the kitchen and shrinking your existence to those two rooms in the first instance because that's where you can basically manage yourselves uh, safely and easily. Yeah.
0: That's, a, no, that's a really good uh, point, and it kind of leads nicely on to the next thing or something that I kind of was thinking about earlier. Um, you kind of touched on it there, the sort of the psychological aspect of um, cooperation and community spirit versus sort of hoarding uh, your own you know covering your own homework kind of thing and I think more often than not we'll see time and time again like we've seen for example in pa- uh, in Pakistan with the with the flooding now um, people generally tend to band together in these sort of situations and actually genuinely want to help each other and sort of in, in the same in Ukraine and things um, wh- where is the balance between and I guess this is more of a psychological question. It's a little bit more open-ended. Where is the balance between sort of the need to protect yourself or your family or your space versus the ability to be able to help other people around you, which is more valuable? And in maybe in your experience or maybe some case studies that you might have thought about or kind of studied up on, where have these things been successful Um where there's more of a community spirit and where have these things failed, where there's more of a sort of a community spirit?
1: So one of the major, major driving factors that we see in the case studies and the historical precedents is community spirit normally heavily engaged and is activated in a disaster when there is a clear perceived end in sight. Mm -hmm. Right? So the hurricane moves through, but the hurricane's gone. Now it's about rebuild and everyone's expecting regular function to return to society and law and order to reign in a in a short term and everything to sort of start getting
0: fixed. So right we all just have to work together towards this goal. Exactly. Blah blah blah.
1: Um, so people tend not to mad max it because they know if they do anything in that short time period, there's going to be a very, very strong legal consequence against them as well as societal consequence Right. Where That's we true. see fractures and fragmentation in society is one. Where there's no perceived end in sight. So people just out of desperation start to do some, some crazy things um, or, you know, are just highly motivated to take other people's things like the baby formula that I mentioned earlier. You know, you imagine you're three days in, no end in sight. That baby's not been fed in 48 hours. What are you as a parent prepared to do to get that formula? By that stage, anything. Right, exactly. You know, and you'll ask yeah, nicely, yeah. but if you know I've got a year's supply and I'm not giving you any. <laughs> that's going to be a tense situation that's going to deteriorate Mm -hmm. fast, right? So Mm -hmm. that information I wouldn't want out there. Um, The second part is where, you know, the civil society is deliberately agitated, you know, whether it be by good or bad governance, uh, whether it be by good or bad policy, whether it be deliberate or accidental. And this is the scary part about the world we live in right now is this political polarization. Um, This isn't good. This isn't good. And we should be challenging ourselves to always try to occupy the middle ground where we can function as a community and society. Or if we are in the extremes, we've got the ability to put those down to cooperate because that polarization doesn't do anyone any favors other than the government that's agitating it to to sponsor infighting quite simply. So the more politically charged location, and situation season you find yourself in, will disrupt that community spirit, sadly. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't still accomplish good things, it just means you have to tread a bit more carefully around those matters. Um, but ideally what you've done in your time, wherever you reside, in your apartment, in your local community, you've already had good outreach and a lot of people look at you and nodding respect and sort of believe you're a good egg and, and would look to cooperate in the future. Um, to to try to sort of build that community spirit in advance. Um, and this was quite interesting. I'll give you one case study that I became aware of in the in the pandemic in the UK during the lockdowns, is there was this sort of one roof policy, right? That it's like if if you were living under the same roof as somebody, there was no social distancing and you could form a bubble and and could work within that. So friend of a friend was living in an apartment block. She was on her own, retired widowy. and you know they kind of got together and and worked in that gray zone of semantics and language and said, well, there's only one roof on this building. So everybody in these apartments, we're in a bubble together. So we can get together, we can cook together, (laughs) we can eat together, we can play games together, we can go outside and walk Mm. together. Because Mm. none of us can cope with this on our own and nor should we. And that's what they did. This whole block of flats basically just sort of agreed to it to be like, yeah, we're just our little self-contained bubble of this apartment complex And we're going to look after each other and get through and we'll start Mm -hmm. to figure this out. Uh, And they did that with really, really good effect. And so, but what it needed was that initial initiative, wasn't it? For somebody to stand up, call the meeting and say, I think we need to talk about this. This isn't looking good and I'm worried. And so sometimes, and you know, it's not about being the leader. It's about seizing that initial conversation opportunity to say, do you want to come over to my apartment for a cup of coffee? Everybody, because, you know, I think this is something maybe we need to talk about how everyone's doing. Does, do people need help? You know, what what's going on there? And you know, away they went. And I'm sure there was countless other stories like that uh, as, as we reach out to different communities through the uh, through the pandemic. Um, but going back to your original question, it's a balance. You know, protecting yourself, protecting your family is obviously one of the highest priorities. But working within your community is so highly desirable, we should be doing every, everything we can to affect that. But there's a balance in there somewhere. Uh, the community I live in, the roles I hold, the positions I work in, I would be very, very much outreaching in any disaster situation and looking to help people. If I go back to some of the places I lived in the UK, the moment that that so looting yeah. started to start, which would be six hours in, I'd be out of there. Like, right. There's, there's <laughs> yeah. no good going to come of some of the council estates I used to live on <laughs> when I was younger in, in a short-term disaster. Like, It's just going to go mental. So you either just locking the doors mm-hmm. and staying home, or you're just getting the hell out of there.
0: Absolutely. You know? I mean, I, I've lived in some council estates in in Ireland myself, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, hell, it go. doesn't even need you. Don't even need a power. <laughs> it's like stolen cars going up and down your 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 front of your house every evening is enough for you to kind of lose faith in your community. But um, yeah, no, and I think that kind of leads on to just one other. I guess you kind of touched on a little bit there, but the psychological aspects of these things, like I, I mentioned earlier, like even something like what are the things that people sh- could have kind of kept ready to go or stored that uh, that they wouldn't think about? Like, you know, very practically, like if you're stuck in your house for 72 hours with no power, you're probably going to get bored. Do you have board games? Do you have books? Do you have, you know, an iPad fully charged so you can, you know, whatever, watch a movie? You know, is, are there, is there anything that you would think to have that maybe... Uh, a bit of a morale booster that kind of not having anything to do, you know, like what would you do without your power? Like if you don't have Netflix.
1: Yeah. So there's two immediate points there, isn't there? Is that, um, you know, having those, uh, comfort food items, as you mentioned, um, because that will help Mm -hmm. hugely in just sort of managing and mitigating stress that you've got those comfort items and then yeah, ways, ways to constructively pass time which we're really bad at in modern society. Like you say, once these devices stop working, good Lord. And then if you're just going to check your phone every 10 minutes, or every 10 seconds until the power comes back on, you're going to be unbearable. So like, yeah, absolutely. Board games, uh, card games, things like that, all for it. Um, some digital technology, technology backups. So uh, yeah, like you say, movies saved on a, on a hard drive or something like that with a, with a backup battery, mm-hmm. all this stuff is going to pay huge dividends, huge, huge dividends. Um, but that's, you know, I would say get your 72 hours basics covered off first and then add that layer in. And what was interesting, I'm, I'm in any number of private groups of um, survivalists and preparedness and, you know, instructor forums and this, that, and the other. And one of the, <laughs> the, the major, <laughs> I'm laughing while I say this, but you'll, you guys will get it, one of the major sort of panic points of perpetual discussion for two years solid was access to alcohol, like right? That's what everybody was like, if, if the liquor store runs dry, I'm done, right? And they were just buying it in like by the truckload because I can cope with anything so long as at the end of the day, I can sit down and have a drink and then get to bed. Now, there's a lot to be said for that on, on terms of you know coping mechanisms, psychology, and, and physiology and all this, that and the other, but you know, we don't need to get into that now, but that you know for, for what happened over that prolonged period, You know, we saw a spike in a lot of things, but alcohol consumption and and self-medicating was part of that. And so those are your options, isn't it? If you can't constructively pass the time and gel as a family unit or a small community, you're going to default to some very unhealthy coping mechanisms that will be okay in the short term, but are not long-term sustainable. So and I'm not saying don't drink, by the way, it's just, but you've got to keep all that on a manageable scale,
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um. Well, Ermias, if maybe you have some other questions, but if not, do, do mm-hmm. you have anything you would like to add, Ermias, before we wrap this? Up? I
2: mean, this this uh, this conversation can keep on going forever, and uh, For just sure. as the first conversation we had with you, Toby, um, there's so much left to be said, and we didn't even get into the urban sur- survival sort of. Um, mindset and things like that but i guess we'll have to have you on a third time (laughs) (laughs)
0: looks
1: that
2: way (laughs)
0: that would be great great. there's
2: there's 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 a full discussion to have in and around that so it might have been an injustice to um start discussing that now i guess
1: yeah i think we could take that separately that's I, i think we've covered a huge amount already today that people listening should should be kind of creating their own action list on the back of this already and and activating that you know the same day or or the day after. So what I don't want to do is overwhelm people with information. So I think actually if if this sort of theme is resonating with you guys then we might need to just drip feed this out over one or two other podcasts of like okay so you did everything we said in the last one you've got that boxed off here's what i'd do next here's what i'd do next and just Mm. just kind of hold their hand a little bit through that process over a few weeks you know
0: yeah no i really really enjoyed it and toby super appreciate uh your sort of divulgence Mm. of of your sort of expertise and knowledge in these areas i think it's extremely valuable information that everybody should have access to um but apart from the conversation we just had is there anywhere you could recommend people go where they can start to maybe, I don't know, uh, are there resources where they can start to sort of download things or like, you know, how, like I know you're, you don't like kind of fixed kit lists, so to speak, but are there any resources available that people can sort of, if they do want to start deep diving into some more sort of nuanced elements of this sort of thing, um, where can they go? Good question.
1: Um, So you guys are already aware that Selk and I run our own Patreon channel, and that's got all of the articles and video uploads throughout the entire pandemic and beyond. And that's priced Mm -hmm. at um, the the minimum level that Patreon would let us put a product out, which is a dollar a month, which, let's face it, is nothing. So um, there's a huge archive in there to jump into where I go through all of these points we've raised today in in much, much more detail, much more context, and much more descriptive. Um, I think... What we can also do is put a link in in the the comments of this, of an article I wrote on the seven pillars of preparedness that break those down a little bit more comprehensively than we've covered today with a little bit more logic and structure. So if people need a sort of checklist to follow, that would be the one. I'm not naming names and specifying products and giving order codes and Amazon links, but we're saying like, you need to consider these things within this pillar Like, this is what you're going to want to have in here. And that just gives people, it it narrows it down. It gives them more focus on what they need to prioritize and look at. Um, There is much, much more than that. But I would start there. Because the key thing is you acknowledge the situation, you get started. I just want to put in one caveat, guys, before we finish, if I can. That one of the most vital things, unless you're single, and even if you're single, it's still fairly vital, is going to be communication. If you're going to start to formulate a preparedness plan and invest time, effort, money into it, especially if you're in a partnership or a family unit, you need to be the least informing your family on what's going on, why you're doing what you're doing and what you're doing, but ideally involving them. All right. Um, So everybody's got board in and everybody builds that knowledge. It's no use only you knowing where the water filter is and how it works. And then the day they need it, you're not there. Right. So, if you're going to stop past stuff into the house, you know, in an age-appropriate manner, the kids know, need to know where it is and how to use it as the spouses and partners. Um, and listen to people. If you want to build community around you, you need to spend far more time listening instead of talking. It's very easy to begin to present yourself as an authority and be like, everybody listen to me. But what you need is that baseline. We spoke about baseline extensively before. Same in a civil community. You need to get that measure of where's baseline at, how, how willing and cooperative people are, what effect can you have with regards to that? But start at the family unit level, okay? Um, don't go off at the deep end. If you're coming up with, with purchase lists in triple digits and more, you're starting off wrong, right? It doesn't need to be that expensive and it shouldn't be that expensive to get you started for 72 hours resilience, okay? So use that as a bit of a gut check. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, there's a lot more I could say, but it's, it's not going to be germane for today because it's too yeah. much for people to absorb. Totally so understand I'll, that.
0: I'll it I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it, a wealth of information there already. And I will absolutely put a link to your Patreon and anything, any other links that you kind of are thinking of or recommend uh, after this, I will absolutely put them in the, com- or in the description of this uh, episode. Um, Toby, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us again. We'll definitely have a part three at some point. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> just a never-ending conversation but no it's great to kind of it's really nice to kind of wrap back around to references to the last conversation and I would also say like while we're on it if anybody does want to recap they should go back and listen to the first episode that we did with you because I think it kind of complements these sort of more nuanced things um very nicely
2: and in that episode there is a question you ask in the end there Toby that we still haven't gotten the answer to we'll have to wait for the um third episode there was uh, i think it went something along the lines of you and i have discussed this at at um at another time um when you've been here and we've had some um raspberry juice let's say um of how can you sort of rummage around in a city being completely unnoticed in the middle of the day and we'll have to answer that next episode all right well let's
0: let's keep that one for there for the next episode um take note of that uh, follow those links and make sure you sign up to their to toby's patreon as you said it's only i think one dollar or one dollar twenty or something like that if you're living in the states um i'm a member on there and it seems like there's some extremely good resources um to to delve into um but until the next time toby thank you so much for coming on and um yes yeah, stay safe and take care
1: thank you guys so much for having me We'll be